Hello there, welcome to episode 72 of Right Where You're Sitting Now, the podcast for the website sittingnow.co.uk. Today I am joined yet again in the uh, co-pilot seat by the ever decreasingly, uh, what's the word I'm looking for, a man who uses smaller and smaller uh, tents and words to to, to announce his presence. Monosyllabic? I can't even say it. Monosyllabic. Monosyllabic. Yes. Yeah, so, Monosyllabic. Yeah. <laughs> so joining me is Mark Wivesey Satir. How are you doing this week, sir? Fine. There we go. <laughs> there it is. There it is. Uh, I think it's gonna. It's gonna. It's gonna reduce to a grunt soon. Surely, I just thought. It's gonna. It's like a black hole. It's gonna sort of withdraw into itself and reach sort of you know kind of a paint you know that was that thing in the center of the black hole again singularity yeah yeah verbal singularity this is what i'm aiming for actually <laughs> on this and then your 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 our friends in podcast man will tune in through the star ether and there will be just like it'll be silence but not silence <laughs> as you've ever known it and uh and yeah and uh, it'll be a whole new a whole new sort of era I reckon in the whole <laughs> the whole podcast experiment. You can't accuse us of grandeur in this podcast. Um, anyway, uh, give us a flavour of what we're talking about this week. Well, uh, it's a book by a gentleman called Martin Cannon, and it's called The Child Stealers: Phantom Social Workers and American Mystery. I mean, it's interesting that the subtitle "Phantom Social Workers and American Mystery" because people. Uh, we usually um, associate that with being a, a particular United United Kingdom sort of um, phenomena, and uh, so yes, and it's a, a very comprehensive, a very comprehensive um, book on that subject. Probably the only subject, the only book, I should say, that focuses particularly on that subject. Although Mr. Cannon has written uh, on the MK Ultra. Yes, uh, he back in the nineties wrote a book called The Controllers, I believe, um, uh, which is about mind control and MK Ultra. And but this episode, we're talking about yes, like you say, the phantom social workers, and it's something that I personally found interesting. Um, I was going to do an episode; I still might do an episode of uh, Sitting Now uh, video um, for the YouTube channel. Uh, hit like if you're watching this on YouTube, by the way. Uh, God, that's so cheesy when people say that. Anyway, um, so yeah, I was going to do an episode on that because I remember it. I remember it, it being in the news. Uh, my mum worked with children, uh, what she used to, and I remember her being particularly horrified by um, this uh, spate of uh, random, almost men in blackish kind of uh, anonymous uh, phantom is a good word <laughs> or bogus as we called it here in the UK um, social workers that they, they would turn up and attempt to uh, um, steal away the children of um, new newborn you know, um, new mothers I suppose <laughs> um, and uh, but they would always fail and it and it was yeah the whole thing's really bizarre interesting and weird and uh, I thought I thought oh that make a good episode um and then during my research uh, I stumbled upon this book the child stealers and I was like oh someone has written a book on it fantastic uh got in contact and so we have uh, Mr Cannon coming on the show shortly so anyway let's pop over to that interview now and we'll see you on the other side
right. Uh, oh gosh, how much of myself do I reveal? <laughs> <laughs> it's um, um, I well for for many years I was a blogger under the name Joseph Cannon, and I had a uh, I had a blog named Cannon Fire, which was probably most famous for. Um, drawing attention to the bulge on uh, George W. Bush's back in the 2004 debates. And that uh, that set off kind of a nationwide controversy, or at least for me, it was just a bit of fun. But a lot of people were talking about it for a long time. And uh, the uh, my girlfriend, Janet, was the first person to notice that. So it all started with her. And it led to a major embarrassment for George Bush, but uh, he won the election anyways. Um, before that, I was probably I've I've written a lot for a number of different publications. I was probably best known for something that I'm quite embarrassed now, that I wrote in my 20s uh, called the Controllers. I will. It was all about Project MK Ultra, which has become this very very um, hot button topic in more recent years. And uh, I'm afraid that my piece attracted the kind of attention that. Uh, you know, the kind of people who read pieces like that are not the kind of people I wish to be talking to. No. Let's put it that way. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's funny. We, we've been talking a lot on the show about kind of how conspiracy used to be kind of, it used to be kind of a fun subculture. And now it seems to have become this sinister, uh, you know, it's, it, it's like a dirty word now, way more than it ever was. Oh, I was involved with it in the 1990s. And it was getting dirty then. And I was, uh, you know, over the course of, say, wow, I, I wrote Controllers in 1988, and then a lot of very, very strange people uh, glommed on to me, and they were calling me day and night with their stories. Uh, I was I was actually rather famous in certain circles for a while. And then, um, I, I don't know, I just became very, very uh, disconcerted by that whole subculture, and it was, it was just kind of a place where I did not want to be. Um, a lot of people using argumentum ad hominem arguments, a lot of people getting very paranoid, a lot of people who seem to have completely lost faith in the very idea of democracy. I, I didn't want any part of that. Yeah, it's, I, and then obviously it got way worse more recently with um, with QAnon and all this kind of stuff. Yeah, that was one of the reasons why I was a little bit afraid to write The Child Stealers. Because it is a book about crimes against children, and uh, I was afraid the QAnon crowd might uh, catch on to this book. And although I would be very happy for uh, them to make purchases, and I'll, you know, I'll, I'll cash the checks, no problem. Um, I really don't want them as fans. Uh, what the things that they believe are not the things that I believe. Yeah, I mean, it's. I don't know if you've looked at the uh, the trajectory of their kind of um, their 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 brand of conspiracy theory but it does feel like they've just sort of made a kind of mashup of existing conspiracy theories if you've been kind of following you know i used to follow them a lot more when they were like i say when they're more fun and more kind of like like a subculture rather than uh you know um like what it's become now but if you look at QAnon, it's really weird like how you know you, you can see oh they've got that from david ike they've got that from william cooper that's an alex jones thing it's really strange how they've kind of you know, uh, melded all of these conspiracies into this super strange, uh, overarching conspiracy. I, I find that really strange. Well, those guys are always stealing from each other. Uh, I talked to Bill Cooper before he was famous, uh, nineteen eighty-seven, I think it was, and even then, I could see that he was taking riffs from other, uh, you know, fr from other fanatics before him. 
Yeah, he's, he was an. I mean, I just read a book about him. Actually, it was quite interesting. Um, I can't remember what it's called. Not be behold a pale horse. That was his book, wasn't it? But oh, pale horse ride, yeah. pale horse rider. That was the name of the book. It's really good. It's an excellent kind of yeah. um, biography of him. That was a yeah. Uh, because my interest was in NK Ultra at the time, uh, I contacted him early on in my research because he said that he had used hypnosis to recover his memories of this, you know, wonderful document that he supposedly saw during his time in the Navy. Uh, obviously, I don't believe that he saw any such document. The story doesn't hold any water as far as I'm concerned. Um, I will say, though, that when he said that he underwent hypnosis, it was the only time I ever heard Bill Cooper vulnerable. He's norm. I, you know, if you've ever heard him speak, he was normally the blowhard to end all blowhards. And this was the only time where he stumbled and you kind of heard his voice feel a little bit, uh, you know, quivery. I, th something happened to him, but I don't know what, but I will say that the guy was just an, an enormous liar and a bully. And he seemed to be he seemed to have prefigured the American Trump phenomenon, the, the idea that you can make it in this country by uh, by relying on paranoia and hatred and just uh, uh, insulting your your opponents when you can't uh, when you can't make your case logically. Yeah, uh, <clears throat> it's funny how some conspiracy. Th it's it's really weird how there seems to be like a sort of uh, two different types of conspiracy theorists. I'd say there's the um, kind of what what have been termed the I think they called the conspirituality. Is it conspirituality? I think that's the new, the new version of it now, where you have the new age uh, kind of anti-vaxxy types, and then you have, then you have the William Coopers. And I wonder what it is that makes people suddenly switch. Because Cooper was all about UFOs, wasn't he? Originally, he was about he saw a UFO, and then um, all of a, yeah. and then all of a sudden he he became hard right Christian kind of, um, you know, anti-Mason. All that you know, all, all the sort of. Uh, tropes of alex jones he sort of basically t turned into an alex jones didn't he and uh, and he didn't he didn't do any research no yeah. I, I recall one time i confronted him after a lecture and he was going on about the illuminati but he clearly knew nothing about the historical organization and you know and i, I afterwards in in the restaurant connected to this uh, venue i you know i told him about that and uh, he said well you do your research and I said, just a few months ago, I was doing research in the Library of Congress. I was looking for uh, actual copies of books written by Adam Weishaupt. Uh, I know somebody who, if uh, we can uh, work up uh, payment, will actually translate this book, and uh, it will be the first translation of Weishaupt's. You know, I was going on like that, trying to do some scholarly stuff, and he just stands up in the middle of this re this restaurant, and he screams at me, you do your research. Huh. I had done the research. He was the one who hadn't. But, you know, the, what these people call research and what I call research are two different things. Yeah, I think yours probably includes actually reading the book, <laughs> whereas, <laughs> whereas I don't think there's does. We just did a show on the Bavarian Illuminati. Um, a big giant book just came out. It's um, a translation of an old French book of about the uh, the Bavarian Illuminati. It's it's really, really... Um, yeah, it, it sounds very much like the the, the very book you're talking about. So yeah. I suppose the word Illuminati has become like, a bit like saying the... The, the the bogeyman the boogeyman yeah. the boogeyman if you if you try if you put the word bo the boogeyman instead of the illuminati and all these things it, it sort of makes it sort of chimes doesn't it it sort of gives a different sort of spin on it or... well it's become this com you know this yeah. completely unhistorical myth a scarecrow used to you know 
to frighten people who are extremely gullible. But I also think Illuminati is used as, uh, you know, some of the people who first started to cobble together the Illuminati myth back in the 60s and 70s in the John Birch Society, um, they were using Illuminati as a way to, uh, to actually insult uh, the very concept of the Enlightenment. Um, you know, you read those writings back then, and they go after the uh, the Enlightenment writers like Diderot and Voltaire as though they were the devils incarnate, as though, you know, they were the causes of everything that's uh, problematic today. So I really think that's what they were using the word Illuminati to mean. Yeah, it's, it's, yeah, it's just a kind of convenient group, I suppose, isn't it, for people like that? Um, so let's talk about it. When did you first uh, – when did you first – when did uh, phantom social workers first come across your on across your radar? Well, I had heard of the phenomenon. I guess it was by uh, looking at uh, old issues of Fortean Times magazine, so I knew that it existed. But I always assumed that it was something that had happened in uh, in Great Britain, uh, because there was a great uh, uh, great outcry. Uh, there was a wave of these things in uh, in the UK, especially in the uh, area of Yorkshire, but also. In London and other places, uh, in 1990, and actually that wave st- I've later found out started in the summer of 1989, um, and that you know, and, and the outcry was you know the brouhaha was so loud it reached even me on this side of the uh, on this side of the pond. Um, but I just kept it in the back of my mind. Um, a few years ago, I got it into my mind that I just wanted to write. Um, shall we say, a, a light work that was going to look at various mysteries um, involving people, you know, these kind of waves and attacks. Like the, uh, I was thinking in particularly the uh, 2016 phantom clown um, outbreak that occurred here in the United States. That I thought was funny. I thought that was amusing. And I wanted to write about that. And then there were some things that John Keel was writing about, such as... Um, well, this one is not funny, but uh, phantom uh, casualty no- uh, casualty notification officers, and these are people who would go around to uh, during the Vietnam War would go around to uh, families and uh, tell them that their son had just died in the war, and you know cause enormous grief and stress. But it turns out that these people were imposters, and the uh, you know the son who was off, uh, you know in the military actually was perfectly fine. Now, um, so I did some research into that, and I found out that John Keel was absolutely correct. He, he mentions this in some of his uh, lectures, which you could find on YouTube. But there are stories uh, in newspaper archives which verify that John Keel knew what he was talking about, that these things did happen. In fact, they went back as far back as World War II. And not only that, they continued, uh, I discovered, um, including both up to and including both Gulf Wars. Anyways, uh, if ever that book gets published, I can, uh, you know, people will re- read my chapter about all that. So that was going to be my book about, uh, I was going to call it Phantom Attackers. And it was about various stories like this. And I wanted to have just one story about the phantom social worker phenomenon in England. It was just going to be one chapter. I was going to do it once over lightly. And since uh, I knew that there had been an investigation of the phenomenon called Operation Child Care and that uh, Operation Child Care in Yorkshire had decided that, that there was nothing to it. It was all hysteria and, you know, that it was all, you know, a case of the public going crazy over rumors. And that was going to be my conclusion. 
And so that I actually started to write a chapter along those lines. And then I thought, well, has anything like this ever happened in the United States? So there's no harm in firing up Google and finding out. And that was quite a night, let me tell you, because I found case after case after case after case. A lot of these cases were very recent. And there was no way that anybody could call this stuff mass hysteria. And certainly it was, you know, had nothing to do with what was going on in the UK because most people here in the United States had no, you know, had never heard of what had happened in, uh, in, uh, in Yorkshire back in 1990. Um, so that's when I decided that I had to do some serious research and well, very soon a chapter turned into a book. It was a very hard book to, to write because, um, I, I don't exactly enjoy writing about crimes against children, but uh, I, if I didn't compile this database, nobody would. So that's basically how the uh, how the Child Stealers was written. And specifically, you 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 settle on this term, phantom social worker. I mean, you make a point. It's not you know you don't want to use the word bogus. I mean, just for just for just for our friends in podcast land, what what exactly if you know what is the definitive definition there's an oxymoron <laughs> yeah, of a phantom social I, worker I sh- i'm sorry I, sh- I should not have gotten ahead of myself no, that's perfectly uh, the, fine. It's, uh... the term bogus ca- uh, social worker is used a lot in the uk um uh, in fact the word bogus is seems to be used more in the uk than it is in the united states of america i don't like using that term because um <laughs> well you know some years ago we had the bill and ted uh, movies came out and you know the kids in that movie used the word bogus to describe anything they don't like and so uh, in my mind bogus is a kid word it's something it's like teen slang circa 1989 right and I will always think of the word bogus that way. So uh, I prefer the term phantom social worker, which has also seen some, uh, seen a, quite a lot of use uh, during the UK wave of 1990. And, and that's why I use that. Uh, a phantom social worker is basically an imposter, somebody who uh, goes, to, um, goes up to a, um, usually it's a young single mother. Uh, what knocks on the door pretends to be from, uh, well, here in the United States, we will refer to it as Child Protective Services. It's something else in Great Britain, obviously, and says, um, I'm here to, uh, you know, to investigate reports that uh, you've been a poor parent or that you've abused your child. They talk. Um, sometimes these phantom social workers uh, will show seemingly incontrovertible um, documentation. They'll show badges. Um, They'll get into the door and they will talk their way into an investigation of the child. Uh, they will say, you know, you abuse the child. There, there are bruises on the body, and the parent suddenly becomes very, very defensive and says, no, 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 look, look for yourself. And uh, an investigation takes place. Um, usually, these encounters have become very, very tense, very, very coercive. Uh, no matter what the parent says, it's always interpreted in the worst possible light. Um, you know the you know, and you can imagine what's going through the mother's mind during these situations. You know, it's it's a Kafkaesque nightmare because nothing she can say can make, you know can make the situation um, go away. And uh, there are threats to take the ch- child away. And uh, so basically, the that's it. Um, 
it, one of the oddities of the phantom social worker phenomenon is that the child is never actually stolen. It, there are no cases where this has happened in the United, uh, in the UK. There have actually been a couple of cases where a successful kidnapping uh, came about in the United States. Um, well, I should say that um, there are two different types in the United States. There have been two different types of uh, phantom social workers. One of them um, clearly is a case where uh, you've got women who have psychological issues at very, very often. It was right after a miscarriage. And they decide they have to have a child by any means necessary. And um, these phantoms, you know, these imposters, I should say, um, on occasion, they have actually stolen children. Um, uh, you know, these are very, very disturbing kidnapping cases. Um, usually the children are recovered. And very often because uh, somebody dropped a dime on the kidnapper, you know, the a woman suddenly has a child and she can't really account for it. The neighbors become very suspicious and they call up uh, and, and they might actually know about this kidnapping that has been, you know, uh, appeared in the news lately. This has actually been going on. What I've just now described is something that has been going on for quite some time. The earliest case in my collection goes back to 1919. Um, should I talk about that case, the earliest case? Um, well, let's, uh, let's, let's look at some of the broader stuff first, because there's a few... Um... There's a few other things I think we should look at before we go into that. But one thing that kind of interested me was you said there's also cases in other countries. So it's not just the the US and um, and the UK. I think you, you mentioned Africa in the, in the book. It's quite yeah, it's quite worldwide. Uh, as a matter of fact, my um, I mean my preliminary uh, readings have told told me that it's a real problem in Africa. Um, unfortunately, I you know I've quickly found out that if I if I was going to do a proper job on what's happening in Africa and in India, I'd have to know the languages. You you know, you, you can go only so far if you're dealing only with English. And uh, just plus, it's, uh, you know, writing about these, you know, I, I did more than 300 pages on just what was happening in the United States. The African situation is, uh, it really would warrant a book uh, of its own. And it should be written by an Africa, but African, by somebody who actually um, knows those countries. Yeah, I imagine the culture and the setup there, you know, the social services, whatever the equivalent is, uh, is the culture. It's probably quite different, isn't it? And it's, it's interesting, Mr. Cannon, in, in the Charles Stiller's book, it's in much earlier cases, there's a whole different culture around um, the, the whole concept that, you know, the, how we relate to the idea of being adopted and, and unmarried mothers and so on. That all, that's all part of the, the kind of um, background, the background to these kind of events. Yeah, I should say that, um, you know, in Africa, it really does appear that they do want to steal the children for the purpose of rehoming the children for a price that, you know, it really does seem to be a racket. And there was a time when that racket was kind of going on here in the United States. Um, you know, I, I, I devoted a chapter to, uh, you know, to a woman named uh, Georgia Tan, who was the person who made adoption chic. She had befriended many Hollywood stars and so forth. And uh, basically her idea was that poor people did not deserve to have children, that uh, poor people should have their children literally stolen from them and then sold to, to rich people. 
And she did this successfully for about 20 years uh, in the 1930s, beginning like in the late 20s and 30s and into the 40s. And, you know, then she died. And and when she died, uh, the truth about her situation finally came out, that she had befriended a lot of the powers that be in her home state of Tennessee and, uh, you know, the cops and, you know, the, the political machine that basically ran the state. And that uh, she had arranged for a lot of mothers to lose their children in flagrantly illegal ways. Or women would go in uh, to deliver a child and be told that uh, that there was a miscarriage, that the you know that they had lost a child during delivery. Um, and that was a complete lie. The child would be sold to somebody, uh, you know, to somebody affluent via Georgia Tan. That was, uh, a phenomenon related to what I talk about, the child stealers, but it's not really quite the same thing as as a phantom social worker, although every so often Georgia Tan's agents did pretend to be, you know, child welfare, welfare agents for the state of Tennessee and in other neighboring states as well. And she had some quite high profile sort of Hollywood connections, didn't she? She had some quite um, sort of glamorous sort of uh, sort of actually sort of um, adopters that she was in, involved I was going to say do business with but I suppose that's that's what, what she was doing wasn't she well, she was doing business um, with them so and they came to a de- well they tried to come to a defense at some point yeah yeah I mean probably the most famous actor that he she dealt with was uh, was Dick Powell who adopted through her and uh, it, it, you know there were some very embarrassing news stories about him when uh, the scandal finally broke I feel sorry for the guy. I mean, I don't think he knew. Yeah, she's a real kind of Cruella de Vil kind of character, isn't she? That's what she reminded me of when I was reading the book. Um, yeah. Um, so on, in the book, you uh, it's, you also make quite an important kind of definition, which I think we should look at, which is lone nuts versus conspirators. I think it's interesting to look at the kind of, they're kind of two different types of uh, phantom social workers, aren't they? Yeah, I, I'm sorry. I, I use the terms lone nuts and conspirators because I, you know, I used to be interested in the JFK assassination case. Well, I guess I still am, but you know, it's 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 not my primary focus. Um, so I kind of borrowed the terminology from them. The lone nuts were the kind of the people I talked about earlier, um, women who have uh, usually after a miscarriage, they, they basically just just lose their grip on reason. And they decide they had to have a uh, a child by any means necessary. This has happened more often than you would think. It, it seems like it would be a very rare phenomenon, but uh, it does happen. And there are some really horrifying cases. Um, I mean, there are cases even where they've, uh, you know, they've uh, women of this sort have have kidnapped um, pregnant women and killed the mother, and then tried to perform a cesarean section. I mean, I, I don't even like to talk about some of these things. Yeah, that, that when I was reading the book, that's, that's exactly what I was, I was thinking because I was aware that there's a sort of a parallel kind of um, social, psychological uh, um, phenomena of, of, of women with a desperate need to have a child and who can't for whatever reasons who, you know, yes, who, who like befriend somebody who's like very close to, um, you know, uh, having a child and, uh, and pregnant and, uh, and sort of, and then, you know, and they have actually, they've done it. It's, it's, it's a curious thing. It's happened far more than like you mentioned, Mr. Cannon, far more than you would 
like to think you'd think goodness who would do that but also but also it's um, it seems to be there's was there's not been any cases in the UK all the, the only ones I'm aware of I might be wrong I've been from the United States and, and you know, I don't like to think about why that might be the case. Uh, but the key word in what you said is befriend. That is one of the main differences between what I call the lone nut case and the conspiracy cases. These uh, these women in the lone nut cases, uh, the ones who have had miscarriages and so forth, um, they ingratiate themselves. They see the mother over a course, uh, you know, over the course of several visits. They befriend the mother. Often we're talking about, uh, you know, single women who are single mothers who are struggling, who are having a very, very hard time of it. And so when somebody shows up with, you know, with a little bit of money, you know, uh, a few gifts, or even just a kind word, I'm your friend, I'll take care of the kid for you. I know that, you know, you've got to go to work and you can't pay for a babysitter. Things like that, that's the way, you know, I hate to give advice to somebody who's thinking of stealing a child, but if you are stealing a child, that's how you go about it. Now, the ones I call the conspirators, they have a completely different way of going about it. They're coercive. I call them conspirators because they operate in teams. Um, you know, I'm using the word conspiracy as as the police use it, as prosecutors use it. Uh, criminal conspiracy is when two or more people conspire to commit a crime. So in any case where you have two or three people pretending to be um, social workers showing up on your doorstep, that's a conspiracy right there. Now, the thing about the conspiracy cases that is particularly troubling is that they're often armed to the teeth with information about the house uh, that, you know, about the households that they're entering or that they want to enter. They'll know the names. They'll know that a child was recently born to this person or born to this couple. Uh, they'll know uh, the social security some, uh, number sometimes of the mother, uh, the birth date of the, of the child, things that uh, sometimes they have the medical charts. And that's really, really disturbing that they're able somehow to get this information and yet the parent checks with the Child uh, Protective Services Agency and discovers that, no, this visitor to my household was a complete fake. Yeah, it's um, how, I mean, I, one thing I found kind of interesting as well in the book was you talk about kind of, some of them are kind of repeat offenders as well. They actually, you know, in, I think in one case I read in the book, they sort of almost canvas an entire area, don't they? Well, there, they, it happens in waves. Um, you see, the, the first, you know, waves involving what I call the conspiracy cases, these phantom social workers working in teams, um, happened in the early 1980s. Now, that's one of the reasons why, uh, you know, I can't, you know, it's ridiculous to say that, you know, this was mass hysteria based upon uh, publicities following the, uh, you know, the UK wave of, the, of 1990. Because we're talking about 1982 is when it all starts here in the United States. It started in, in Florida, and uh, then it moved to Texas. Um, the first big waves, big, big waves in the United States um, happened in New Jersey. I think it was in, in 1984 and in, um, in Michigan. Michigan, they were all over the state, and it was always the same four people. Now, what's important to understand about both of those waves is that the, um, the police did not alert the news media. And the news media were very, very upset about that. You know, this is, you know, 
this is harmful to public safety if you're not going to warn people about what's happening. But uh, what's what's good from our point of view is, is that it kind of made the case as bulletproof because here we have absolutely no news coverage of these phantom social workers whatsoever, and yet the same descriptions come up in case after case after case. In Michigan, where you had uh, – in 1984, you had four people who looked very, very distinctive. And in New Jersey, where you had uh, a three-person team, and again, yeah, very distinctive look. Um, there was a uh, – in New Jersey, there was a, a young, slender, thin-faced uh, blonde woman with straight blonde hair uh, calling herself Susan McKay. In many, many different cases, she used the same name. Sometimes she called herself Carol. And her partner was an elegantly dressed black man who was um, – who had a three-piece suit. And I believe that was the case where he wore a pocket watch even. Um, you know, so – we, this, yeah, it's important to understand that this was the same description in many, many cases, and there could be no possibility uh, – You know, it's just absurd to say there's hysteria involved because nobody knows what's going on. Members of the public have no idea that this is a thing. And same thing in Michigan where you have four different individuals. Interesting. So, I mean, um, let's talk about some of the – um, more famous American cases. I, I mean, the, the three, you sort of identify kind of three um, particular cases that you say kind of hang the book together, which is Mary Agnes Moroni, Jane Gay Croft, and Linda Taylor. Could we start off by talking about the Mary Agnes Moroni case? Because I think that's quite interesting. Yeah, I thought for a while that Mary Agnes Moroni was the earliest case in my collection. And then I'd found out that no, there was some that happened in the 20s as well. Um, but she was – in 1930 in Chicago, um, her – this was a case I probably – it's hard for me to say whether this is a lone nut case or a conspiracy case because there's an argument to be made either way. But uh, Catherine Moroni was a very young mother. She married at the age of 13. That was shocking then, and right now I think it would be illegal. But by the age of 17, she was already working on her third kid. Um, her first kid, Mary Agnes, was two years old, uh, and her husband had been laid off. It was the Depression. They were starving. I mean, you can you can see pictures of, of the two parents, and it's clear that um, they know food insecurity. Um, so while the father is away uh, working, uh, he, he does have a part-time – he does find a part-time job. You know, it's, uh, you know, it's very low-class work, but he'll take whatever he can get because it's 1930, right? Um, and the mother is taking care of the kids. And in, somebody knocks on the door named Julia Otis or calling herself Julia Otis. She's an attractive young woman. She claims to work for – gosh, I forget what the agency was called in, the, you know, in 1930 Chicago. But um, she, she brings groceries. And she says, oh, we've heard about uh, your situation and uh, we're here to help. Uh, we think we can get steady work for your husband. And, you know, she's saying exactly what Catherine Moroni wants to hear. And it's very clear that this Julia Otis woman instantly falls in love with Mary Agnes Moroni, the two-year-old daughter. And she just thinks that this is the cutest child she's ever seen. And she, and, uh, she actually suggests, can I take her to California? 
And, you know, Catherine is saying, no, no, we can't have that. So immediately afterwards, uh, you know, Julius, Julia changed the subject and is, goes back to telling Catherine Maroney everything she wants to hear, you know, like, you know, we'll bring you food. We'll bring you, we'll get you, we'll get work for your husband and st- things like that. I think she also, I think she also, she sort of suggests to the mother that the, when she, if she goes off and for whatever reasons on this trip with her child, a uh, sort of baby will come back as, um. I don't know what the term, as fat as a butterball. That's what she said. <laughs> you know what I was going to say. I thought that's, I, I, that's exactly what I thought that I, it was, and I thought, well, no, surely that that would sound far, far too rude if I if I say that. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but um, yes, I did remember that rightly, and yes, in in, in uh, I'm sure she yes, uh, it's 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 a, it's a pleasing image, in its own right. Uh, but yes, go on. Right. So on a subsequent visit. This Julia Otis, this woman claiming to be Julia Otis, um, comes again, you know, with more gifts. I mean, she's got a layette now for the uh, for the baby that's uh, that's that's going to arrive, um, and she's and she says, oh oh, you know, little Catherine, I'd love to buy her some new clothing. She needs some new clothing, and by now they're friends, right? And so Catherine Maroney, uh, the mother, says, okay, you can take her off and you know and buy her some clothing, and that's it. The child is never seen again. Um, Julia Otis um, sends Catherine a note saying that uh, she's taken the kid to California. Then uh, we we get a note. Uh, they, they get another note from allegedly from uh, Julia Otis's employer at the agency, and this employer is very very apologetic. She says Julia Otis has just lost a child of her own, and that um, you know she will return uh, Mary Agnes Baroni very, very soon um, that, you know, she's in, but she's very, very apologetic for what Julia has done. Now, it's interesting to note that this second note from the employer is written in a different handwriting. So that's one indication that Julia Otis has, has an accomplice in all this. And there were eyewitnesses that actually saw her, Mary Agnes Moroni, and an older woman um, to get, you know, all three together at a train station. And uh, also witnesses saw them at a department store. So I think this is a conspiracy case, although I cannot prove it. But the child was taken. And uh, the child never reappeared either in this case. No, it absolutely devastated the Moroni family. I mean, Catherine Moroni was stricken with depression for, um, for the rest of her life, and especially on the anniversary of the kidnapping. Um, she would sometimes just wander off and be, uh, you know, and be impossible to find, um, threaten suicide, things like that. It was, it was just, and, and really the father was hit just as hard. This was a big, big case back in 1930. I mean, there was massive, massive attention paid to this. Lots of headlines throughout the country. The police checked every train going to California because that was just about the only lead they had. Um, nothing. Nothing. Um, now, for a while, it was thought that they had found the uh, found Mary Agnes at the age of 20. Um, and, and that's kind of a complicated story how that came about. But there was a woman named uh, Mary McClelland who had been uh, adopted. She did not know who her parents were. And uh, she, uh, Life magazine, of all institutions, um, got this woman together with Mary Ag- with the Moroni family. She looked like all of Mary Agnes's siblings, um, 
yeah, Catherine Maroney and her husband had quite a few children. And uh, they looked alike. I mean, uh, of course, siblings usually look you know, similar to each other. But in this family, they really did all look like they came stamped, stamped out by the same factory, right? And uh, this, this Mary McClellan woman looked like she was a member of the Maroney family. And, so, and she was the right age. And Mary McClellan did not know who her parents were. And so everybody, you know, Life magazine is saying, well, that's it. You know, we, we've solved the case. But no, they didn't solve the case. Uh, many, many years later, uh, I, I don't know the exact details, but uh, DNA testing proved that uh, this uh, Mary McClellan woman was not a member of the Moroni family. And I think she, I think uh, the, the the woman who came forward much later, uh, was it hypnotism? Did she claim hypnotism? She said something, she's been hypnotized and therefore I, I can recall all this past. I don't think that was this, this case, although I know that uh, it was uh, hypnosis was used in 1930. Hypnosis was used on Catherine Maroney to try to get more details about uh, this um, this Julia Otis woman. Um, it really didn't help. Um, you know, in 1930, uh, hypnosis seemed like this kind of hip new tool that maybe we should use more often. Um, you know, I know something about the history of forensic hypnosis, and I know that starting in the 19, you know, uh, around 1980, um, it's it's made illegal in most states. You really can't use uh, hypnosis for forensic investigation. Yeah, yeah. So the the next kind of big uh, tentpole case was uh, Joan Gay Croft. Could you talk to us about her? That was. Um, uh, God, I believe it was early 1947, an F5 tornado, one of the worst tornadoes in in the history of this country, devastated a large swath of Texas and Oklahoma. And in – hold on a second. Uh, I forget the exact town, but um, jo- Joan Gay Croft's um, – Joan, Joan Gay Croft was um, – she was a child living in – Oh, I'm sorry. I, I really am trying to look this up because I am. Uh, I just cannot remember the name. We're doing the same, don't we? We're, we've got the book here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I just cannot remember the name of the town uh, in which. Anyways, uh, she's she lives in this fairly small town in Oklahoma that was absolutely flattened. Her mother, Cleta Croft, was uh, was killed in the, you know basically when the house was destroyed. Her father. Uh, Olin Croft was seriously, seriously injured. Joan Gaycroft, who's a four-year-old child, uh, was herself pretty seriously injured. She got a 10-inch splinter in her leg. Now, that's that's not an insignificant thing for a four-year-old. Her older her older um, sister, uh, you know, was slightly injured in the in the hurricane. So uh, the husband and uh, and the children are sent off to the local hospital, which, as you can guess, is absolutely swamped. This is the worst sort of triage situation. Um, the splinter is removed from Joan Gay Croft. She's bandaged up. Uh, the doctor says that she's going to be all right. And the two children are kept in this kind of makeshift uh, shelter in the uh, hospital's basement where a lot of people and in, in are huddled together and they're taken care of by nurses. Olin has his own room upstairs because his his injuries are really quite uh, quite serious. 
a member of the family, uh, you know, makes her way to the hospital, uh, checks on the children, sees that they're all right. I think it was Olin's sister. Checks on Olin, finds out that, uh, you know, he, he's in serious condition, but uh, they think he's going to be all right. Uh, this this family member is also a nurse, so she basically goes off to help with uh, with nursing duties because it, it's it's a terrible, terrible situation. Sometime during the night, and this is one of the most bizarre mysteries in in all of American history. Yeah, this one's, I found this one fascinating. <laughs> Sometime during the night, a team of men wearing uniforms come in. They claim to be agents of the state and that they have come to relocate Joan Gaycroft. Now, they don't want the seven-year-old sister. You know, no, we don't want her. We want Joan Gay, even though she's the one who's been injured. And they take her off. Now, you may be wondering why the hospital, you know, why the nurses would allow this. Apparently, it was because this is 1947. It's right after World War II. And in those days, if you show up wearing any kind of uniform, it's, sir, yes, sir, whatever you say, sir. And that's the way they acted. And it was only afterwards when people started to ask what happened to the little girl. And the police did some checking and found out that nobody from the state had come to collect this girl. Uh, they had no reason to. And, you know, why on earth would they want uh, the four-year-old and not the seven-year-old? Why did they, you know, they mentioned her by name. Why did they ask for this one little girl by name? Um, you'd think, it, was it somebody from the family, you know, who had it against, uh, who had a problem with Owen Croft? Well, they've checked that every way, every way from Sunday, but uh, no. No, there's, uh, there's nothing along those lines that anybody was able to determine. And uh, to this day, this remains one of the – there have been you know, claimants who have come forward, women who have said, you know, I am Joan Gay Croft. None of them uh, over the years have told a, a story that has actually held up. And it remains one of the great American mysteries to this day. This one's particularly interesting to me because this is, this is the first um, – I mean, it, it almost becomes – Fourteen, doesn't it? In a way, um, this kind of stuff where you have people turning up and they seem to have more like above average information on a person, and 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 also seem to be kind of um, like you say, it's like it seems completely random. Like, why would they know this person's name? Uh, and uh, and in later cases, we'll talk about they they seem to know like in quite intimate details about uh, you know some of the um, the the victims or would be victims. Yeah, nothing about the case makes sense. And I think uh, this is, this is although I try to stay away from, you know, Fortiana here, this is one case where I can't help but suspect something like that. If somebody was trying to blackmail the parents, you know, the Croft family did have some money, but, it, you know, if somebody was trying to blackmail the, blackmail the parents, why wouldn't they take the seven-year-old? Because it would have been much easier to take care of her. She really wasn't wounded. Jungay Croft had a serious wound. I, I can't explain it. Do you have do you have any theories or? <laughs> no, lots of people have theorized about this one. Uh, <laughs> members of the Croft family I know have theorized endlessly since 1947. Uh, nobody knows anything more about it other than what I have just told you. What, yeah. what were some of the suggestions? What were what were you know some of the theories which sort of grew up around or developed from the experience? Or there really aren't any theories. Uh, I mean, even 
the false claimants who have come forward saying, you know, I am Joan Gay Croft, even they couldn't come up with a story, you know, to uh, to explain. They, you know, even if you're using, you know, uh, your imagination and you're trying to come up with some sort of fictional scenario, this is very, very hard to explain away why this would happen. Yeah, it's it's um it's yeah it's a really strange one. Okay, let's go on to Linda Taylor because this one's really interesting as well. Uh, yeah, well, Linda Taylor uh, wasn't her real name, but she was one of the most remarkable criminals in American history. Now, she was not a victim; um, she was a she was a criminal. I believe that um, I cannot prove this. I believe that she was the one who committed one of the most uh, remarkable uh, nurse abductions in history. And I should preface this by saying that uh, this is an, uh, uh, a phenomenon that is allied to the phantom social worker phenomenon. We might call it the phantom nurse phenomenon, babies who are stolen by people claiming to be nurses. Again, this happens more often than, uh, than you might think, and uh, hospitals even have a term for it. They call it code pink. Now, I don't think it happens nowadays because, you know, nowadays it's it, it's difficult for just anybody to walk into a hospital. You have to explain who you are and why you're there and who you're visiting. And, you know, I know this from personal experience. But uh, in the old days, in the 60s, people would walk into a hospital to see the newborn babies as a form of entertainment. They didn't have to be family members or anything like that. You could just walk in. And so that's what was happening in 1964 when uh, a woman claiming to be a nurse, um, you know, said that she had to run some tests on a newborn child named Paul Fronsack. And she, you know, and she spoke at, you know, at some length with the, uh, with the mother of the child, Dora Fronsack. Um, this nurse took the, took the kid, walked out of the hospital, uh, hailed a taxi, got off, you know, got off, got off at a certain stop. And... The kid was never seen again. Well, this again was a huge, huge case. Massive, massive headlines. Uh, a lot, you know, the the, uh, the mother's description of this uh, of the perpetrator. You know, the you know drawings are, are in the newspapers, are in the Chicago newspapers, are in newspapers uh, all across the nation. Um, and the photographs of Dora Fronsack after her child was stolen are just absolutely devastating. Um, Many years later, uh, well, let me just say that uh, I believe the case is solved. Um, I believe that the uh, Paul Fronzak was actually stolen by a woman named Linda Taylor, who was herself uh, a famous criminal in all sorts of other uh, contexts. Uh, should I talk about that now? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, okay. Well, Linda Taylor became uh, most famous under that name. Uh, in the 1970s, when Ronald Reagan was first running for president in 1976, um, he was running against, um, you know, welfare queens, people who were making false claims of welfare. And there was one who was a particularly obnoxious along those lines. She called herself Linda Taylor and she lived in Chicago and she had, you know, she was getting many, many welfare checks under all sorts of different aliases. This woman was rich enough to own buildings. Okay. And uh, she was running all sorts of other scams. Uh, and this suited uh, uh, Ronald Reagan's uh, purposes perfectly because he hinted to the audience, 
you know, without actually directly stating it, that this Linda Taylor person was black. And so that, he, you know, he was kind of playing that card, you know, that, you know, they're taking advantage of the system. Well, no, they weren't taking advantage of the system. Um, you know, Linda Taylor was a career criminal. Linda Taylor was 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 a con artist with a long, long history, and welfare fraud was the least of it. She was also, as it turns out, a serial kidnapper. And, uh, you know, I mean, I've seen interviews with her son who would say that, uh, yeah, we, we had kids staying with us, you know, you know, they, they would just suddenly pop into the apartment and then they, they would suddenly pop out. It is the son who said that uh, Paul Fronsack, the, style, uh, the stolen child, was one of these children. And that, uh, you know, within his family, he was called temporarily Tiger. And that was his nickname for the few months that he lived with Linda Taylor. And I should also mention that Linda Taylor went by any number of different names. That was not her birth name. She was born Martha Miller. Uh, And also, and this was most interesting, that she assumed many different races. She considered herself to be a master of disguise. Um, she was born as Martha Miller uh, to a family, uh, a very poor family in Alabama. Uh, they were in, they lived in the most racist county in the United States, you know, at probably the worst possible time. And uh, <clears throat> for that sort of, you know, for an interracial marriage, it wasn't a marriage, actually. Her mother had just had an affair with uh, with a mixed race man whose identity is questionable. So uh, the the child was either one half or one quarter black. We're not quite sure, and at the time that was considered very very disturbing. You know, it was it, it was literally illegal in that part of Alabama back then. And so uh, the child had, they had to pass the child off as white. Now the child had uh, what we might call Caucasian features and hair, but you know had kind of caramel colored skin. So this this child, who later became known as Linda Taylor, just uh, made a habit of bleaching her skin in order to fit in. And she took great pride in this. And she would, you know, depending upon the situation, she would appear as a black woman. When she embarked upon her career as a criminal, she would uh, um, uh, appear as a black woman. She would appear as a white woman. She probably lived most of her life as a white woman. But she also appeared as a Latina and, uh, and even as an Asian. Whatever the situation to describe um, required, and uh, you know whatever the uh, the mark that she was after required, because she she was a con artist and she used every scam in the book, and it was clear that when she had children coming in and out of her house, that she was kidnapping them for profit, and and it's beyond question that she was a kidnapper. There's even uh, an audio interview with a family member that she kidnapped for a brief time. We'll be right back after this word, 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 word. Yeah, it's kind of interesting. The um I think this the other sort of um links I'd say that where, where things start to get a bit more fortean, I'd I'd say uh, actually, the later cases, these these kind of eighties cases, where it, it, I don't understand why these uh, phantom social workers kind of keep going almost because they they seem to have a very like high failure rate, don't they? When it comes to um, 
and the very strange behavior as well like very strange in some cases like one bit that really struck me was in the book it says about if the minute they're questioned they just sort of they just run they you know they 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 just vanish you know they, they, oh i left my id in the car you know that's the last i see of them and they and they don't come back either which is the other you know to the same address so could you talk to that a little bit what what, what do you think is going on there uh, I wish I knew what was going on there, but uh, yeah, that is the main mystery, uh, um, you know, involving the phantom social workers. And it's one of the things that really keeps this separate from uh, what we might call the Q mythology. You talk to a Q person about the phantom social workers and, you know, they'll think that they have the answer. I mean, it's very, very easy to, to predict what they would say. Oh, well, they'll, they are stealing these children and they want to steal these children because they're going to use them for some abominable satanic sacrifice. Well, yeah, the main problem with that is, is very simple, is that uh, these phantom social workers, when they work in teams, don't steal children. They try to, they never, ever, ever succeed. And that one of the questions I ask in my book is, and the main question I ask in my book is, why do they keep persisting year after year, case after case, decade after decade, and they never succeed in actually taking a child? Um, they get into the they get into the households, they can talk their way into the households, they often talk their way into examining the child, but they never actually, even though they they say, you know, well, I still say that this is a case of child abuse. The child has to come with me. That's when the parent gets all defensive and says, you get out of here. And this happens in case after case. Um, I, as I ask in the book, you know, if, if you were to open, uh, you know, a donut shop and you never sell a single donut, how long are you going to stay in business? And are a lot of people wanting, you know, going to want to get into the donut business because, you know, they, they've watched your example. The one case that really fascinated me was the, um, it might have been actually several, but you, you talk about every now and then they will get one and then they'll just take them to the park and buy them ice cream or something. Well, that's, yeah, that's, that's it. There have been, I think, a few cases. Uh, there, there was, during the 1990 case, and, and, I, and I hesitate to mention this because I could not find the news clip that actually dealt with this specific case. I found one news story that dealt, uh, you know, that, that referenced it uh, very, very obliquely. And, you know, I don't have names, I don't have a date for it, so I don't feel comfortable with it. But supposedly one of the 1990 cases in the UK uh, they did manage to, uh, you know, the phantom social workers did manage to make off with a child and uh, took him to a park and bought him ice cream and just left the kid there. This is this was a toddler. Uh, they found the kid, you know, a couple hours later. Now, something like that did happen in uh, 2006. I think this was the Carlos Baez case in uh, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Um, this was this was a very, very strange case. Uh, three, uh, th th first of all, we're talking about a rather, you know, a rather struggling area of Philadelphia. It's, it's a, not what you'd call an upscale community. Uh, three alleged social workers come into, uh, you know, uh, come into the Baez household. Um, Carlos Baez is, is not a young child. He's 11. But they say that this child has been abused and, you know, we've got to take him up. They're not credible social workers. There are three. Um, there are three young. Well, there's two young black guys and one older, 
fellow who is, uh, you know, he's fairly well dressed and he's taken the trouble to uh, to print up a business card. So he's kind of credible. The two younger guys, they're, they're dressed like one's got a baseball cap on and the other's got a hoodie. And I'm like, my God, put some work into it. You know, if you're if you're going to come across as an as an agent of the state, at least try to dress the part, you know, I, you know, try to, you know, in the 1980s, they were much better in terms of coming up with uh, fake badges and fake documentation, and they had briefcases and they wore suits and the whole thing. You know, now they're showing up in hoodies. Um, anyways, these three guys show up at the Bios household, and uh, you know they make all these accusations against the parent. The parent uh, gets very angry and orders them out. They show up the next day with guns, and they steal the kid, and they have the kid for all of one hour. Now, my news, the news story is available to me, and I got everything that's been printed. Uh, the news stories available to me um, are very, very oblique about what happened. Apparently, there's nothing involving uh, sexual molestation or anything like that. Uh, they just drove around for a while. Um, they talked on a payphone. Uh, they drove by, but apparently did not enter a hotel. And then they dropped him off in a park about seven miles away from home. So... It's not really a kidnapping, is it? No, except it's, in the most technical sense of the term. Yeah, it's very strange, isn't it? I, I mean, yeah, it's uh, that's that's where the real kind of um, that's where it starts to feel more John Keel esque to me. <laughs> These kind of stories where I, this is kind of what piqued my interest. Actually, um, I read the story about the. Uh, the kid that was just left in the park and I thought oh that's interesting so that's what, how I followed it up and eventually found your book actually but um yeah it's it's um it is interesting actually and Kiel himself actually talks about a, a similar incident doesn't he to a phantom social worker which is the kind of phantom portrait photographers I thought that was really interesting well yeah um in his lectures, he mentions that that uh, at the same time when he was uh, investigating all, all the uh, Mothman weirdness in West Virginia, um, there was also this phenomenon of people going around wanting to um, uh, take photographs of people's babies. And uh, these are people, you know, they're not very well to do. And somehow these phantom uh, portrait photographers knew that there was a child in the household and they were actually quite happy to have a uh, – you know, have somebody come in there and take uh, pictures of the kids. Um, but, you know, the uh, the parents never got the uh, the photographs and uh, whatever agency they claimed to be working for turned out to be completely non-existent. Uh, John Keel said that he came that close to actually uh, running into one of these. Uh, but, you know, you know, as Giff Smart used to say, much, uh, I guess, friends. I found another a few uh, phantom photographer incidents, and some of them were very, very disturbing. Um, you know, uh, the, uh, children were actually stolen, and uh, I think in one case, a parent was uh, one of the parents was killed by somebody claiming to be, uh, you know, a child portrait photographer who just, you know, who, who just wanted to take a, a, you know, a photo of the kid, and uh, you know, no charge. This, you know, there was some sort of a spiel along those lines. So yeah, that happens. Yeah, I mean, also as well, sort of rifting on the John Kill angle and things. I mean, he's usually associated with, you know, um, like you mentioned, the Mothman, uh, identified flying objects um, and all that. And uh, oh, no, he calls them ultra-terrestrials, doesn't he, rather than extraterrestrials. But, you know, again, you've got the, although it doesn't originate with him, he, he, you've got the man in black 
men in black figures and they're you know sort of authority figures aren't they from some kind of mysterious agency working on behalf of the government or the authorities and um and that's a very that's a kind of very similar sort of um role isn't it it's a very similar um narrative narrative well some people have compared the phantom social worker phenomenon to the man and men in black accounts um i'm a little you know, I want, I want to get a, I'm a little hesitant to get into that because, uh, well, first of all, in America, the phantom social workers, um, they don't um, wear black generally. Uh, one of the things they, they, they do do, however, is wear disguises. What I mean is subtle disguises, uh, something that uh, it would make it a little bit difficult to, uh, you know, to, to identify them, you know, in normal circumstances. I mean, in quite a few cases, I ran into women women with um, jet black hair, unnaturally black hair. Obviously, that's hair dye or a wig. You know, and so when I say disguises, I mean things like that. You can see, or you know, blondes who clearly were not born blonde. Um, you know, eyeglasses that are very large and very distinct. So when I say disguises, I mean things like that. That uh, you know, that, that would figure into an eyewitness description that would not necessarily describe the person in uh, you know in a non-PSW uh, situation. Yeah, and you wouldn't find you wouldn't catch the uh, the men in black wearing baseball caps, would you? I mean, let's face it. No, <laughs> I, that's one of the things. I'm sorry, I, I go on about that in the book, but it really does bother me. Um, I, you know, if there's one thing that's worse than a criminal who want, who preys on children, it's a criminal who doesn't put any work into it. It makes it seem it, it makes it seem more it, mysterious. Yeah, you know what what could be their motivation or what was the yeah. What was the what was the reasoning or, or you know what was the what was the thinking process? Yeah, what were you thinking? <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, I have I have cases, you know, in, in the 1980s again, they dressed for the occasion because they, you know, these state agencies they have dress codes. Um, that's one of the you know one of the things you should look for is whether they're dressed properly. And yet, uh, it, you know, for the phantom social workers who have been showing up in uh, I'd say the past 15 years, I have cases where they're you know, they're wearing like cocky shorts and a T-shirt, you know, sandals, you know, tennis shoes. I mean, come on, guys, put some work into it. Put some effort. You know, th think of it like uh, like the movie Ocean's Eleven. You've got to practice. You've, you know, you've, <laughs> you, you, you have to dress for the part. Yeah. Why do you think the American press and police were kind of, I mean, I, I don't want to it to well, i suppose it is that why were they so kind of so tardy in kind of linking these cases especially the 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 later ones it seems like you know with the uh internet and you know all sorts of things they just don't seem to be linking these cases at all there's in your book you say that they're just you know they, they're these kind of uh, like islands almost aren't they you know the, the each case is uh it, it almost feels like they're not kind of cross-referencing at all that's one of the things that really, really bothers me. I mean, somebody should have written a book like this one a long time ago, and I, I wish I could distribute what I, you know, what I've written to, uh, you know, gratis to every police department and, you know, every small newspaper in this country. Because, um, uh, I, I mean, I, I was uh, just going over. There was a um, case in Indiana, or it was a wave in Indiana, phantom social workers, in 1992. Um, the head of child so child services, um, you know, was interviewed by by a journalist at that time, and he said, "I'd never heard of anything like this happening before." That's almost a direct quote. Well, there had been a previous wave in Indiana, 
in that exact same county in 1989. Uh, what do you mean you never heard of anything like this happen before? Haven't you ever talked to anybody in your own department? Um, similarly, when the uh, the Willie Wilson ca- uh, scandal happened in uh, uh, early 2000s, um, you know, there was a claim that the child the child was probably murdered by her foster caregiver, but uh, the foster caregiver originally claimed that the child was stolen by by a phantom social worker, basically. And the uh, uh, again, the, the Department of Child Services in uh, in Florida sent out a statement saying this has never happened before. We you know, we've we've never heard of such a thing happening before. What do you mean you've never heard of such a thing happening before? Florida is one of the states that the phantom social workers like best. You know, the first of the, uh, you know, what I call the team effort cases uh, in uh, December of 1982. No, I think it was earlier in 1982, but it uh, happened uh, in a suburb of Miami. That was, uh, uh, oh, there was also a case early on in Clearwater, Florida. But, you know, Florida is a case that they, you know, that they hit all the time. How come they, you know, how come they don't know the uh, the history of this uh, of this whole phenomenon? Well, maybe in Flor- you, maybe in Florida, it's because so much weird stuff goes on in Florida. It's <laughs> like an overflow. Or, or, you know, one of the most uh, famous recent cases is the Jesse McCombs uh, case in uh, Marysville, Washington. That happened in 2019. Uh, for some reason, that one got massive amounts of publicity, and. Uh, Again, the newspapers uh, are talking like, oh, gosh, what happened to this poor woman has never happened before. What do you mean it's never happened before? Not only are they completely unaware of what had been a major phenomenon, a a nationwide discussion in the UK throughout the years 1990 and 1991, but it also has happened many, many times in Michigan, in Indiana, in Nebraska, in, it, usually in what we call the flyover states, uh, not so much California and New York, but all these all these states in between. Um, many, many, many cases. Yeah, one thing I'd never heard of before, um, and it, it was, it's, I think it was more of a kind of um, uh, more of a point of interest in the book. But this kind of thing in Cleveland, the the RAD um, test, it's kind of kind of gross but interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, well, I, you know, it's not something I want to talk about in any um, in any detail. But we're talking now about uh, Cleveland, uh, the county um, in Yorkshire. So this is the UK, and uh, it's not Cleveland, Ohio. See, uh, okay, I'll get into that a little bit later. Why that's why that distinction is important. Uh, but uh, when the uh, the great UK wave of 1990 hit, and everybody was talking about uh, phantom social workers or bogus social workers at that time, throughout the British Isles, uh, when that hit, everybody said, "Oh, this is just mass hysteria arising from the Cleveland scandal." Now, the Cleveland scandal is something that happened in 1987. And it was a very disturbing set of events. It wasn't really as um, it wasn't really a, a phantom social worker uh, event, but it has to be mentioned in context of of the UK wave from of 1990. What happened in Cleveland was that um, there was a doctor, a pediatric doctor named Marietta Higgs, who um, joined the staff yeah, on you know at the beginning of 1987 of uh, oh I forget what is the main hospital in that county in England. And she had become recently converted to a test called renal 
anal, uh, no, uh, reflex anal dilatation. And this was a test to determine whether a child has been um, sexually interfered with. And I think, I, I think I'm just going to leave it to the imagination as to how this test was conducted. But she, this, uh, this Marietta Higgs, Dr. Higgs, uh, performed this test uh, routinely on just about every child that uh, came under her care. And uh, she decided that uh, all of these kids who um, got a positive on the RAD test uh, must have been sexually abused. And we're talking about some very young kids. But this, boy, this is not something I enjoy talking about. <laughs> it turned into a major scandal because uh, eventually within this uh, fairly you know, constricted population – she identified uh, 125 abuse victims. Now, this was far, far more than the system was set up to take. In other words, you know, the first 12 or 15, they were able to find foster parents for these kids. After that, they had to warehouse the kids at a hospital. And the hospital was not set up for this. And, uh, and the hospital was saying, we don't have the money for this. You know, we're, we're not a child care agency. And Dr. Higgs, uh, her attitude seemed to be, uh, well, that was really the problem, is that she was actually kind of arrogant. You know, money, that's not my department. All I know is uh, I have to take care of these, ch these children. And, and that turned into a major scandal. People started saying, this, this RAD, RAD uh, technique of determining whether a child has been abused, are you it's brand new. Are you sure that we can trust it? Uh, it's very, very invasive. I mean, doesn't this count as a kind of uh, child abuse perpetrated in the name of catching a child abuser? Uh, this is all very, very iffy. And what are the chances that all of a sudden in this one year, uh, we would have 125 child abuse cases, whereas normally we might have about 10 so it turned into a major, major scandal, and all of Yorkshire, and really the entire country was talking about it. Eventually, the police stopped uh, cooperating with uh, Dr. Higgs. Uh, they refused to take the children away from their parents. Uh, the parents were getting on television and, uh, you know, claiming that they were the, you know, that they were the victims of a witch hunt. Um, and it, uh, the, the country basically turned against Dr. Higgs. Many of the uh, many of the children were returned to their to their parents, and a lot of people automatically presumed, well, that's it. It was just a witch hunt. This was a case of mass hysteria. And then in 1990, when the phantom social workers struck the UK, everybody just said, uh-huh, it's the same hysteria. People started talking about child abuse, you know, in in the wake of the Cleveland scandal, you know, back, you know, a few years earlier, and now it's the same thing. It's happening again. And what's really fascinating is that kind of explains why you know you talk about these um kind of debunkers on reddit which we'll come to in a second because i think they're quite annoying um, but the uh this does kind of you can see why the people um make a link to the satanic panic as well can't you of, of that period as well it, it has a similar sort of almost like a similar setup doesn't it well yeah and uh that was that was it i mean uh you know in the uk when it happened in 1990, they were able to point to the Cleveland scandal of three years earlier, and they were able to say, well, you know, that was, you know, that set off a panic and it's still with us. 
similarly, uh, you know, in you know, in the modern era, we could point to uh, you know what's going on now and say, well, that this is just the, the satanic panic. Well, I have some problems with that. First of all, the cases in the 1980s. That was not a that was not a panic of any kind. They were all geographically isolated. In other words, the the people who were dealing with the situation during the major uh, uh, the major wave in uh, Missouri, and that was a big, big, huge, problematical, complicated wave. They weren't talking about what was happening in New Jersey, in Calgary, in Nebraska, in, you know, in in Iowa, in Texas, you know, all of. Nobody put, well, frankly, nobody put the big picture together until I did. Nobody knew that this was happening in all these states at pretty much the exact same time. Uh, so you can't say that there's a panic because there was no communication and there was no news coverage. Um, I'm sorry, go on. No, no, I was just going to say that it, I think the link is more the kind of mass hysteria kind of angle, you know, so rather than it being mechanically the same, it's more like the excuse is the same almost. <laughs> Yeah, well, you can't point to mass hysteria because, as you know, also as I said, the uh, the cases received no news coverage, even in the flap areas of of uh, Michigan, New Jersey, and Missouri. For months, these things were going on with not a single news story. So, how can you say that that there's mass hysteria? I mean, there was no internet then; people weren't talking about. Them. I was thinking more of the the British cases, you know, because in in um, the UK it was just the police put it down to mass hysteria, didn't they? And um, yeah, and then there, there was a kind of minor mass hysteria, I suppose, in in Yorkshire at least. Um, but uh, yeah, and but let's talk about um, let's talk about Reddit because well, there's this Reddit may, kind. May I, say, may I say before you before I go on, yeah. uh, one of the uh, uh, explanations that was offered by Operation Child Care, uh, which was the um, you know the official police investigation of what happened in Yorkshire, was that people were mistaking Mormons, you know, going door to door for these phantom social workers. Yeah, I remember reading that. It's like, oh come off of it. First of all, the phantom social workers. One of the things that's most disturbing about them is that most of them are female. In those days, Mormons uh, going door to door were all male. And second of all, you know, Mormons go all over the world and everybody knows who they are and what they are about. They announce themselves. They, they try to get you to read the Book of Mormon, not asking to look at your kid. So that explanation is absolutely ridiculous. And I, I don't know who, why they expected anybody to believe that nonsense. It'd be interesting to interview one of, one of the police involved with the case wouldn't it just to find out what the, their kind of mindset was in that because that's i read that i remember it made me laugh out loud actually when i read that in the book it was it, it, it you can't i mean yeah it, it's just preposterous isn't it how can you uh you know how can you confuse a child snatcher with a mormon it's the... oh it's it's absolutely oh one last word about the the satanic panic thing i've gone through all well every news story i could find from all sorts of you know uh, fairly small local newspapers as to larger newspapers, um, you know, throughout the 1980s. And I know that supposedly was the decade of the great satanic panic. Nobody is bringing up uh, the occult. Everybody is treating the, these cases very straightforwardly. And if anybody wants to do follow-up research and look at these news stories for themselves, I still have all the clippings. And if you're serious about that, I'll send them to you. If you can find 
anything in there that has anything to do with the occult or anything that hints at uh, the so-called satanic panic, uh, I will be very surprised. Uh, the news coverage, as far as I could see, was very, very straightforward. It was not overbearing. It was not sensationalistic. It was not hysterical. Uh, they were trying to warn the public, but that's what they darn well ought to have done, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Well, one thing, I mean, um, with kind of internet sleuthing that goes on these days, sometimes it's very successful, but um, I often find that sometimes you get these kind of like hyper-skeptical um, I think you even said the same thing in the book, actually, that you get these kind of people that are sort of hyper-skeptical to a point where it becomes almost a religion, skepticism itself. And it feels like, because I went and had a look at the Reddit um, post about phantom social workers, and it's it, it feels very like they they feel like they've concluded the matter. <laughs> um, but And I, I think you do a really good job of kind of dissecting and kind of um, sort of stomping on it, actually, in the book quite well. Uh, could you talk a little bit about that Reddit um uh because people are bound to like you know people listen to the show they might google it and that might be the first well one of the first things they kind of come across and it, it does feel like it's fairly um it, it was not a good job on the on the front of reddit well first of all reddit says that they've done this uh i i know that you're a reddit article to which you're making reference uh they say that they've done a uh, full review of all the phantom social worker cases no they haven't uh, they're, they're doing a very cursory review of some of the cases that occurred in the UK in 1990. They don't even know that the 1980s cases in the United States happened. They don't even know that there's a history of this thing that goes back to, you know, uh, more than 100 years at this point. Um, and they and they don't uh, bring in all of the more recent cases, which, some of which are quite confounding. And we're talking about the last few years. The Reddit uh, pieces um, and really all of the skeptical writing on uh, the phantom wave of, of 1990 in the UK uh, all goes back to a story that was published in The Independent on August the 16th, 1995. And the writer was a woman named Glenda Cooper. Um, uh, with, I don't mean to offend this Cooper woman, but it's very bad. It's a very bad case because it's contradictory. Uh, you know, it 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 poo-poo's all of the all of the cases. It says that uh, Operation Child Care has uh, you know has com completely solved everything, and they said that there uh, the independent case starts off by saying that there was not one case that was confirmed. And then a few paragraphs later, it says, okay, there were only two real cases out of 250. And then a little bit later, uh, it quotes an Operation Child Care uh, investigator as saying, well, we found that there were two teams involved. Two teams? Well, that, that seems to you know indicate that there were more than two real cases. But I compared this to a story that appeared in The Guardian when Operation Child Care uh, shut down uh, in 1991 or was concluded. And that story said that there were 50 real cases. And again, uh, that was kind of a conservative estimate. 50 is a lot. You know, 50 uh, phantom social workers getting into households and examining children, that's a lot. Um, so I don't even know. And then um, Glenda Cooper uh, spends the second half of her, uh, of her article looking into another case, and uh, a case that happened in 1994, involving a fake healthcare worker who visited a woman named Ann Weil and tried to get access to her son, this phantom social worker had with her the kid's medical file. Mm. 
printed out, you know, the kid had asthma and uh, the phantom social worker knew all this and was asking questions about this and actually had the documentation, you know, in, you know, on her little notepad and uh, brought it into the household with her. Um, this is a good case. How can Glinda Cooper say that it's all fake when half her article is devoted to one really good case? And how could all of these these uh, um, knee-jerk skeptics on Reddick poo-poo the entire phenomenon when, A, they don't know any anything about the scope of this phenomenon, and they're basing it on this one article in The Independent, published in 1995. They're not basing it on an actual report, and I can say that um, concretely because no such report has ever been made public. Operation Child Care never issued a report. And frankly, I'm, I'm a little worried about, uh, you know, our cousins across the pond. How could you be happy with a, uh, with a scandal that gets resolved that way? Why didn't you hold out for a report? Well, you know, why, you know, you have this one rather biased uh, news story uh, appearing in one newspaper and you say, okay, that's it. Case closed. It's solved. Why don't you ask the Yorkshire police, may we please see your evidence? Yeah, it's kind of interesting. That is bizarre for this country as well we're we're, we're a stickler for a report <laughs> um, usually yeah that, that and that in itself there's there's so many and this is what kind of makes this thing so interesting to me i think is that there's so many bizarre little moments like this in throughout the the story isn't there you know the there's these kind of bizarre behaviors of of the phantom social workers there's the lackluster almost like lethargic investigations uh it's it's very it's really quite bizarre and um, one of the question i was going to ask was did did um QAnon ever you, you sort of mentioned them earlier on but did they ever actually mention phantom social workers is, is it ever a kind of you know has it come up as it were with you know within that group that you know of yeah i guess my my answer to that would be not yet but i'm dreading the day <laughs> you know uh, those, the way those people think, again, it's not the way I think. I don't want them to glom onto this because, of course, they'll try to make it out to be that the these children are being, um, you know, stolen for some sort of satanic sacrifice. Uh, no, no, we've had literally, I, I, I've documented hundreds of attempts of, uh, you know, of, of cases where the phantom social workers get into a household, interact with the, you know, with the parent, uh, so often, um, you know, examine the, the kid, photograph the kid, um, you know, that's going on, but they don't actually kidnap the kid. If these are kidnappers, they're the worst kidnappers in history, but they're also the most persistent kidnappers in history. We have only a couple of cases, uh, we've al I've already discussed them, where the phantom social workers did make off with a kid and kept the kid for only an hour. Only an hour. And nothing bad seems to have happened to the child during that time. Yeah, it's really bizarre. I mean, so, I mean, let's talk about kind of some of your theories, because um, you do have some in, towards the end of the book. And um, do you believe it's just things like paedophile rings or, you know, child porn pornography rings, I should say. Well, I, I should say that I changed my mind, you know, uh, I changed my theories as I was writing the book, and I make that very clear. Uh, originally, I thought that uh, these were people who were trying to uh, 
steal children in order to sell children uh, for for black market adoption because there really was quite a market for that starting especially in the 1970s. Um, you know the the the, mar- uh, the market for adopted children um, really really started to shut down because uh, what we call maternity homes started to shut down across the country because uh, unwed mothers were just keeping their kids. You know the culture changed and there are attitudes toward sex changed. It was no longer considered to be incredibly shameful to be an unwed mother in the year 1970 and certainly by the year 1980 everything had changed, and so uh, there were far fewer kids available for adoption, and there were quite a few couples who wanted them. And so, yeah, there was big money for children. And there were cases in the 1970s where it was pretty obvious that they were trying to get, and in some cases did get the child for the adoption market. But no, that's not what's going on uh, with the, uh, you know, what I call the team efforts uh, starting from 1982 onwards. Uh, this is something different because they never really succeeded in getting the child, and yet they keep on going and they keep on going at it. So I was in the market for a different, a different explanatory scenario, and I think I found it uh, when I looked into the Richard Burris case of 1995, uh, 94. Um, I don't think we've talked about that, but uh, Richard Burris was uh, was a man who, um, well. Where I used to live in the San Fernando Valley, he would go um, scouting around there for uh, young children in the uh, uh, the northeast sector of the San Fernando Valley. That's basically where a lot of Hispanic people live, and and to be honest, no small number of them are are not quite legal. You know, they're in the country illegally, and even the ones that are here illegally are are usually you know very very deferential to authority. So he would go, you know, find a place where there were kids and go inside and say, claiming to be a child welfare agent, he would show ridiculously spurious uh, badges and identification. And uh, he would, you know, accuse the parents of beating the children and uh, able to talk his way into a physical examination of these uh, young boys and girls, some very young. And yeah, it's a very disturbing case. Um, Richard Burris was a man with a known history, uh, had been accused of pedophilia before. Um, he was also a man who was very, very computer savvy for 1994. I mean, he was an early adopter of the Internet. He used Photoshop, uh, you know, and, and often it is the outsiders in our society who are the early adopters of this sort of technology. And uh, basically what he was doing was he was taking photographs of these children and uh, manipulating them so that he could sell these photographs on uh, the internet black market. And I thought, and, and this was this case, this was a major case. It received a lot of coverage in the Los Angeles uh, area, and it actually led to uh, the passage uh, of, of a law, the uh, Child Pornography uh, Prevention Act of 1995-96, which was sponsored by um, Orrin Hatch and a fellow named Joe Biden. Um, yeah, so, uh, this, this was an important case and it told me, well, maybe, maybe that's it. Maybe that's the reason why these people are doing what they're doing. Very shortly after the Richard Burroughs case, there was a case in, um, oh gosh, I believe it was in Pennsylvania where a, a woman is upstairs with her children. I mean, was, is upstairs cleaning and she sees uh, flashes of light coming from downstairs. 
these are photographic flashes. What had happened was that one of her old, she had several children, one of her older children had let in two people claiming to be social workers to, you know, from Child Protective Services or whatever they were calling it in Philadelphia and, or in Pennsylvania, I should say. And uh, she had let these people in and these people were taking pictures of the baby, uh, allegedly to look for bruises on the body of this baby. Now, if they had wanted to steal the baby, they could have. They had every opportunity. It would have been easy. But instead, they wanted to photograph the baby. So that's, you know, and, and the mother, of course, shooed them out of the house and then called the cops. Uh, it was There were two of them, a man and a woman. So, um, again, that, that led me to believe or led me to speculate, I should say, Maybe that's been one of the main purposes of the phantom social workers all along. Maybe they're there to take photographs. And then I start, yeah, I was, then I, I got to thinking about some of these cases from the 1980s where, you know, especially you had these very well-dressed gentlemen with the three-piece suits and a pocket watch. In the 1980s, who wears a pocket watch? You know, but... You do some research into the history of miniaturized cameras, you find out that the first time somebody put a camera into a pocket watch was 1897. That technology goes back a long, long ways. And those cameras are far more prevalent than anybody thinks. And so that's basically my theory or what I was thinking, that uh, by 1980s, a lot of these very small miniature cameras that we associate with spy work, they were actually all made by, you know, Minox is not the CIA. It's, it's, it's a company. And they made these things for the, for the consumer market, even though they're very tiny little cameras and you can use them clandestinely. Um, and they were being sold on the second hand pretty decent prices, you know, at photographic shops and, you know, in the classified sections of, uh, you know, of, of, of magazines. You know, people were using them as toys or as gimmicks or as just uh, novelty items, but they worked. And it was very, very possible. Now, now consider the situation. You've got a single mother very, very worried that, uh, that her child is going to be taken away from her. And the, the, the phantom social worker has talked this mother into allowing you to examine the child. And the mother is watching as, during this examination because she knows that if any, even the slightest bruise appears on that child's body, then she's going to be in trouble, that she's going to be accused of this or that. Because the pattern of the, the patter, uh, the banter of the phantom social worker has been very coercive and very accusatory. Again, it's a situation where nothing the parent says is right. Everything is always taken the worst possible way. And so when during the examination, mom's eyes are going to be on the child. And she's not even going to notice if, you know, one of the uh, – because the phantom social workers are showing up in two or three-man teams. If one of the others are actually clandestinely photographing the kid. Yeah, it definitely makes sense. I think – I still feel that there's this strangeness to it though. Like there's the, there's a, uh, I can't put my finger on it. <laughs> there's, there's a, I think that you're probably right in most cases, but some of them just feel too weird. Do you know what I mean? Like the ones where that the fact that they just vanish so easily when challenged and it's, it's just something 
off about it. I, I, I think that was kind of my takeaway from the whole thing is you're probably right in most cases, but there's a few where I just thought, hmm, there's just something a bit off. You and I are in agreement there. Uh, as I was uh, saying recently to uh, somebody who had read my book and uh, you know challenged my theory, and I said, please challenge it because I'm not convinced of my own theory. I will just go so far as to say is that right now I think it's it's the least bad of the theories that have been, you know, that are available to me. There are so many details of these cases that just don't make any sense uh, when looked at from any. Uh, one of the details is that uh, the the, uh, the phantom social workers conduct house searches. I don't think I talked about this in in the book, and I should have. Uh, but uh, well, for example, I'm, I'm right now. I'm looking at a case uh, from uh, 1997. Uh, it's an English case. Well, it's in Lancashire, and uh, this woman calling herself Kay Taylor shows up at the home of uh, Maria Lynn, who's again a young mother with uh, with a you know a single mother, and uh, she uses a child abuse uh, complaint as her pretext. She gets into the home, and what she does is she doesn't just search the child. She searches the entire house, opens all the cupboards, all the drawers, uh, oh, looks through the refrigerator, that whole thing. That happens more often than you might think. That happened actually not too far away from where I'm sitting right now. There was another 90s, 1990s case uh, here in Baltimore uh, just across from uh, across the Key Bridge. Um, a woman comes into – again, in this case, it's the father who's raising the kid – uh, she's making all sorts of accusations. People have seen you beating your children in the middle of the apartment complex. You know, I have to examine the child for, you know, bruises. And of course, the father is like, oh my God, you know, yeah, yes, please look at my child. You'll see that there's nothing wrong. You know, he invites her in. Uh, she conducts the investigation of his young child. But then, strangely, she searches his entire apartment for God knows what. Every single drawer, every single closet, the refrigerator, all the cabinets in the kitchen. Now, you could say, well, maybe she's a pedophile and that's why she examined the kid. Well, that's kind of a problematic theory. But if that's the case, why did she go through all the cabinets and drawers in the apartment? And you could say, well, maybe she's a burglar and she was scouting out the apartment for some reason. Okay, but then why did she look at the kid? It, it doesn't make sense no matter how you look at it. Yeah, it's really... Um... It's something kind of eerie about it. I can't quite put my finger on it. Anyway, but, um, thanks so much for um, giving us some of your time. I really appreciate it. Is there, are you working on anything new? Do you have any new things coming up? Oh, oh gosh. Um, well, I always have about a dozen books uh, in various stages of being written, and The Child Stealers is the only one that I actually saw to the finish line because I just thought the uh, the situation, you know, the, the topic was very important, and I wanted to get this... I wanted to get a database out there, and next time there's a young single mother who has to go through this, I want somebody to say to her, you know, look, you're not the first person this has happened to. You may be treated like you're the first person this has happened to, but there's a long, long history here, and uh, you know, so here's a database. And if, if there is a mother who's in that situation, I'll give you a copy of my book for free because I just want this information out there. As for what I'm writing right now, um, actually, I was writing something about uh, uh, about uh, with my partner about Leonardo da Vinci, and about the geometry that is uh, embedded into a couple of his paintings, particularly the Last Supper, and uh, the uh, the Salvatore Mundi. And I know that uh, 
there has been just an awful lot of crap uh, about on that topic about hidden geometry and paintings and sacred geometry and all that nonsense. I think that what I have is something that I can prove, and uh, maybe I should just leave it there until I, this book actually comes out, if it comes out. <laughs> and if people want to kind of, you said you you blog occasionally. If people want to find your blog stuff online, where would they look? I haven't written a blog post in months, and it's because I find the situation so depressing. I mean, uh, you know, <laughs> you know, my party, the Democrats, they're doing everything wrong right now, and yet, oh my God, you know, uh, what's happening on the other side is just abominable. And so, at this point in my life, I'm telling absolutely everybody, I don't want to talk about politics. I'll talk about anything else, but not politics. And actually, we should say we're recording this on the day where our prime minister's just <laughs> just uh, resigned. So yeah, we've got just as a bleaker situation over here, I think. So yeah, I find it all a bit miserable as well. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm really, really sorry, guys. I know that it's a difficult situation over there. So I, again, you could probably understand why it, it, if you're like me, you, you'd probably rather talk about Leonardo da Vinci. Oh, yeah. yeah. Or or anything. Yeah, way, way more interesting. <laughs> anyway, yeah. But thanks a lot. Anyway, I really appreciate it. Yeah. Well, thank you very much. Yeah, thank you, Mr. Cannon. That was very comprehensive, very comprehensive and clear, very, very clear, clear um, uh, walk through the, the subject. Well, again, thank you very much. And, you know, I, I just appreciate the chance to publicize this topic. And we are back. That was a really, really, I always say this every week. That was a great interview, but we just keep getting lucky. I think we've been too. Very, very clear, very comprehensive. Uh, and uh, and it, like, um, as Mr. Cannon says, it's, uh, it's, it's a somber, it's a somber, it's a troubling, troubling subject matter. It's interesting to sort of um, reflect as well that, was, you know, when the, 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 the notion, I suppose often people have this anxiety of like, the um, social workers or you know the authorities coming to take their children away from them and so on and the, but in the lived reality is that that very that rarely happens and it's uh, and it's only at the very last you know resort as well more for all sorts of reasons um yeah that's always the last resort and in in vast majority of cases it yeah, social workers, if they're involved with families, are, are being unknown to the family for a long time, and vice versa, and often mm. supportive in all sorts of different ways. So it's not. So the so the image is interesting. The the phantom social worker image or narrative is like you know some kind of authority sort of randomly coming off and running off your children. But mm. um, the, the lived reality of these things is, is is more nuanced and actually you know an intending and the it's in, the intention is one of a supportive role. I think it's interesting just from a uh, kind of 14 perspective as well. It's interesting. It's the, you know, it kind of plays into those, the same fears, like I said in the interview, the same fears as the kind of men in black kind of, uh, um, you know, these, 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 it's just the weird behavior. That's the thing that it's the same thing that makes the men in black cases so interesting is that the behavior of the, the kind of, in the, you know, in the book, they, like I mentioned in the interview, they, they act in a very strange way when challenged, for example, in a very weird way. Well, they'll just vanish. That's it. Any challenge, they're gone. And it's like, 
that's very strange. I don't know. There's just something odd, eerie, and a bit forty to it to the story as well as. But I, you know, in the interview, we also talk about his um, conclusion. The you know, this idea that it's for child pornography, which I also agree is a a pretty, you know, sensible. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, I mean, uh, I mean, whatever. I mean, I I, I don't think there's. Um... Uh, I don't think there's a mystery in in the in the true Fortean sense, uh, but there's a, a mystery. There's a social, there's a there's a sociological, cultural, psychological mystery. Yeah, and um, something like you say, something off. There's in some of the cases, not all of them. Some of them, there's something certainly very off kilter. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And it's quite nice. I mean, from a sitting now point of view, it's kind of nice to. You know, we don't always want to be covering the occult and occult subjects, so it's nice to every now and then to sort of, you know, go off track a little bit and, you know, look at something a bit more fourteen or a bit more mysterious um, like this as well. So I, I, it's all I, part I, of the landscape. Yeah, exactly, exactly. It's all part of the, the hinterland. Well, it's not even the hinterland. It's all part of the, you know, the flora and fauna of uh, the hinterland, which is sitting now, which stands on the borders of some parallel reality exactly exactly anyway if you want to find us online we're on all socials just type in at sitting now or no you wouldn't put the at in but you know what i mean just type in sitting now one word find us on youtube give us a like give us a subscribe we're really close to a thousand now uh subscribers that is and yeah we'd appreciate you coming over and giving us a like and a subscribe uh anyway we will see you next week and i think we are returning to the uh the world of the occult um yeah we are so um we will see you next week